I think one thing that is very obvious in the whole world of addiction is that an infallible sign of getting well is a return of a sense of humor. And I believe that it is people in the world of addiction who have taught others with various ailments and illnesses to laugh at themselves. Because you know as well as I do, there are no smiles in the homes of addicts, and the laughs are very hollow. And to be able to retrieve something of the comic from what had been so tragic when it happened, I think is a real grace. Uh, stories about drunks are wonderful. They really are. And we have taught others to laugh at themselves. This old drunk was walking along the street and had a huge knot right on top of his head. But he said, what happened to you? He said, putting toilet water on my hair and a seat fell down. You know, those, I mean, those, those things happen to, to drunks. Another old alcoholic had both of his ears very heavily bandaged. And a buddy said, what in the world happened to you? Well, I saw his drunk last night sitting on the sofa watching TV. The wife was standing beside me ironing. And about 9.30, she went in the kitchen to fix something to eat. She put the iron up, of course, right, uh, right beside the phone. And, of course, the phone rang, and I went, wham! <laughs> and he said, well, I can understand that, but your other ear is bandaged, too. He said, yeah, the guy called back. <laughs> See, these things, you know, happen to drunks. But over the, I mean, my task here tonight is, uh, I'd like to make a few remarks about getting back to basics. And I think it's important, you know, over the past few years, I, I have said, uh, because I have truly wanted to, that I would like to do something on getting back to basics. And everybody I spoke to uh, kind of verbally applauded that. Because they see things happening in the world of treatment and also in the world of recovery outside that they, they would like to just shake loose and kind of get back to the basics. And I believe this, and I believe it very strongly. Before we talk about getting back to them, let's talk about the basics. I believe that in order to understand any movement, organization, institution, or even individual. <clears throat> you have to know something of the history, the background, the why and the wherefore, the purpose and the nature of it. Now you know as well as I do that people who are addicted to any chemical substance, whether it be liquid, alcohol, prescription medication, liquid or pill, or what we call the street drugs, marijuana, cocaine, crack cocaine, or heroin. And if you're addicted to one, you're addicted to all of them. Mood-altering chemicals. In that world of addiction, men and women have been looking for the answer for it for, literally for centuries. And we are blessed to live in the era in which finally the answer was found. Alcoholics Anonymous. And so powerful has that therapy been that it is used, the 12 principles of recovery for alcoholics, 
are also used for drug addicts, N.A., specific cocaine addicts, C.A., narcotics, well, we just mentioned that, overeating, O.A., there's even a, um, a movement founded, in fact, I met the woman who started at Minneapolis, EA, Emotions Anonymous. But they use the principles of recovery from alcoholism and addiction to, you know, chemical addiction of any kind for practically every one of the other of human problems and found them to work. How did all of this come into being? AA was started by two men, prompted by the first of the two, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith. Both men were from Vermont, and I had the privilege not too long ago, I think it's up in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, to uh, go drive right by the home in which Dr. Bob grew up. Beautiful White House, and I think some AA members are buying it. It's kind of an office building now but they're buying it to simply establish it as a sort of a shrine up there. But anyway, Dr. Bob wound up in Akron, Ohio, and Bill Wilson wound up in New York City. Dr. Bob, obviously, from his name, was a physician. Bill Wilson became a Wall Street whiz kid after he had served in the Army during World War I. Now, if you were privileged to see Bill W., and James Woods portrayed him, and James Garner portrayed Dr. Bob. Obviously, it was accurate. It had to be accurate. I mean, they are, you know, so modern, these people had to stick to what had happened, and they were very well done. Um, if you saw them, you know that uh, Bill Wilson's drinking climbed along with his ambition and his job and his work. He went to the top. He was worth a lot of money, but his drinking paralleled his rise. And then his drinking brought him down. He, I believe with all my heart that during the last few years of Bill's drinking, he was not in denial. He knew exactly what was wrong with him. He had reached a point in his life where he was unemployable. People couldn't trust him to carry out business deals. They couldn't trust him to complete anything. He couldn't trust himself to complete anything. And he had reached a point where his wife Lois was supporting him. She worked in one of the department stores over in Manhattan. And she'd leave a couple of dollars on the dresser in the morning to get him started with his drinking in order to survive. And then she'd go over to Manhattan to work to support him. And as you know from the film... Her father just absolutely had no use whatsoever for Bill because of what he was doing to the, to the doctor's daughter. He just, he had no use for Bill Wilson. And as always happens in the heart of the addicted person, he ultimately came to have no use for himself. He knew exactly what was wrong. It was his drinking. And he was under the care of Dr. Silkworth, a wonderful non-alcoholic physician who loved alcoholics and tried to help them. <clears throat> One morning, Bill was shaking out a hangover, drinking, when an old drinking buddy of his dropped by, Ebby Thatcher. You don't hear his name much, 
in the annals of AA. Those who have read a little bit of AA Comes of Age or any historical thing on AA are familiar with that name. But Austin Ripley, uh, a man who had profound influence in my own life, he used to say every alcoholic who has gotten well owes a debt to Ebby Thatcher. He said Bill scored the touchdown, but it was Ebby who handed him the ball. And how true that is. Ebby didn't enjoy permanent sobriety all his life. I think he had nine or ten months toward the end of his life. But he was one of the tragic cases who helped Bill, couldn't help himself. Anyway, uh, he showed up and Bill offered him a drink and he said, no thanks. And uh, Bill said, aren't you drinking? He said, no. He said, what happened to you? Well, I guess I got gobbed. He was nicely dressed, three-piece suit. And I think he spoke to Bill about the Oxford groups. It was something that sprang up around that time. Groups of people who simply tried to forget their denominational differences and who simply tried together to live the principles of Christianity. Well, anyway, it wasn't too long after that when Bill wound up on another drunk and found himself in the hospital under Dr. Silkworth's care. Now, obviously, I wasn't there, so I am making up whatever conversation I will share with you. But it had to go, you know, somewhat along these lines. He said, Doctor, you know as well as I do, I am not weak-willed. I don't think any alcoholic or drug addict is weak-willed. He said, I just can't control my intake of alcohol. And he said, right now, at this point in my life, I want to quit. And I can't. Now, he said, I've done everything you've suggested as best I know how. And here I am again. He was in Towns Hospital in New York City. And then, ladies and gentlemen, this is what happened that has changed literally the face of the earth. He asked a question that had to come from the prompting of divine grace. What else would prompt someone who had functioned most of his adult life according to the principle of self-will run riot what else but God's grace could have forced him to ask this question? I wonder if I can't get sober by trying to help another drunk get sober. Ladies and gentlemen, the answer to that question holds the substance of the very essence of human nature. You and I are created to love. And love, real, true love, is functioning for the good of others. And he asked that question. But notice the way he asked it. I wonder if I can't get sober. That's the goal. Self-preservation is always the very first law of nature. Every one of us in this room seeks happiness. I just want to be happy. I want to be normal. I want to be decent. I want people to respect me. I want to be at peace in here. I want to be happy. How do we get it?
Many people try to buy it. Many people strive for it in things. Listen to his question. I wonder if I might not survive, get well, become fulfilled, be happy by trying to help somebody else get there. Who had ever asked a question like that? Dr. Silkworth, I believe, was one of the most intelligent people alive. I believe that real intelligence is not knowing what you know. A moron knows what he knows. <laughs> An intelligent person is one who knows what he doesn't know. It usually takes about a half century to get to that. And it has nothing to do with college or university degrees that you pile up. I wish to God they'd do away with degrees. I think it bolsters pride. Uh, well, this is an accomplishment that I have made. Don't brag about being intelligent. That's what human beings are supposed to be. We are intelligent beings by God's decree. You don't get medals for doing what you're supposed to do or being what you're supposed to be. Whenever I say, hey, don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-intellectual at all. Not at all. I have three degrees of my own. They don't mean anything, but geez, they look good. <laughs> but I've come to realize that <laughs> it's a kind of a mundane realization, but do you know that thermometers have degrees? <laughs> anyway, Dr. Silkworth said, I don't know. I wonder, I've tried everything else. I've been here, I've been there, I've tried this doctor, I've tried that doctor, we've tried this medication, we've tried this diet. Here I am drunk again, and I think that if I keep this up, I'm going to die. I wonder if I can't get well by trying to help somebody else get well. And Silkworth said, I don't know. However, since nothing beats a trial but a failure... Why not try and see? It's exactly what Bill did. The brilliance of AA. It is a result of pure scientific methodology. Trial and error. What You remember a few years ago, didn't it break out here in Philadelphia, uh, Legionnaire's disease? Tommy Abraham, I live with the Abraham family. He has a nephew who now works at the Mayo Clinic, a very brilliant biochemist. And he was called in to work on that. Anyway, you know what they do when they're looking for the unknown? They go in the laboratory and take everything off or they keep what works. That's exactly what Bill did. He went into the laboratory of human experience and he kept what worked. And we'll see what worked very shortly. He knew a whole lot of alcoholics. After all, who do alcoholics drink with? <laughs> who do drug alcoholics drug with? You know, your own. So he approached people that he felt needed help as he did. And the approach that he used was, being involved in the Oxford groups, get right with God, you'll be able to quit drinking. And after a bit, through pure discouragement, he said to his wife one afternoon, Lois, I must have talked to dozens of men and women, alcoholics, trying to help them, and they're all still drunk. 
He was very discouraged. And she pointed out the obvious. She said, well, Bill, maybe they are still drinking, but you haven't had a drink in six months. And that man had not enjoyed six months of continuous sobriety in his adult life. And it shocked him. From pure experience, he had learned two things. What he was doing to help himself was working. He was trying to help others and it kept him sober. The second thing he learned was what he was doing to try to help them was not working. Get right with God, you'll be able to quit drinking. He had the cart in front of the horse. You have to quit drinking to get right with God because the drinking is what had separated and it was Dr. Silkworth who said to him, Well, Bill, the next drunk you talk to, instead of using that approach, why don't you use a scientific approach? I'm a doctor. I truly believe that it is something inside of your body that is wrong, that makes you drink the way you do and doesn't make others drink that way. Some people can have one or two and quit. You have one and the compulsion to have another one is set up. That's why in AA they teach it's the first drink that gets you drunk. It doesn't make you drunk. It sets up the compulsion to keep drinking that gets you there. And as again, as divine providence would have it, the next drunk he talked to was a man with a scientific background, a physician. You see, after six months of sobriety, Bill was beginning to be trusted in the financial community. And he was working and working very hard, and he had a deal set up in Akron, Ohio, and he had backers, and he went to carry it out. The deal fell through. He was staying at the Mayflower Hotel, and he was terribly discouraged. It was his first big break after being a little bit sober and here it was, it just collapsed under him. <clears throat> well, what do addicted people think of when they hit anything unpleasant? It's anything that will relieve the unpleasantness. And everything in him wanted to drink, but there were no groups for him to go to. AA hadn't started yet. He was the one who was about to bring it into being. However, never knock physical sobriety. I've heard this too often in AA. Oh, yeah, well, he ain't drinking, but he ain't sober. He just got physical sobriety. Don't knock that. Bill's brain was alcohol-free long enough for him to realize that a drink would be fatal. He's in the lobby of that hotel and he could hear the ice cubes clinking against the glasses in the bar. Everything in him wanted a drink. That is normal for the alcoholic. But this was physically sober long enough to say, Hey, Bunky, I know you want a drink, but you and I also know what it would lead to. You really don't want to. Run. Run. And he ran to the church bulletin. And he picked a name, T-U-N-K-S, Father Tunks, an Episcopal priest. Called him on the phone. What was the only thing that had helped Bill not to drink when he wanted to drink? He reached out and tried to help somebody else. 
Well, here he is in Akron, Ohio. He didn't know any drunks there. So he called this Episcopal priest. And he said, again, I wasn't standing beside him. I'm making this up. He said, look, I am not crazy. Don't hang the phone up. You may think I'm nuts when I ask you this question. Do you know a drunk I can talk to? I wonder how many people have ever been asked that question. Hi there. You know a drunk I can talk to? Well, you know what you're liable to think of someone who calls with a question like that. So I don't believe it is very surprising that the man said no. I mean, why should he give names? I'm sure he knew a lot of people had trouble with their drinking. But why give those names to a stranger over the phone? So he said, no, I don't. And Bill said, do you know anybody uh, who are members of the Oxford groups? And he gave him ten names. And Bill struck out on the first nine. Do you know a drunk I can talk to? And the tenth person was Henrietta Cyberling. Her family used to make automobile tires. She said, yes, an old family friend. And he said, well, let me speak with him. She said, I can. He's just too drunk. Can I meet him tomorrow? Come on over to my place and I'll introduce you. And she introduced Bill Wilson to Dr. Bob Smith. And AA was born in her kitchen. And this is the way it started. Bill Wilson approached that doctor in a way that he had never been approached before. Hey, look, I hear you're having trouble with your drinking. Well, yes, I am. He's shaking to pieces. He said, have you been here? You've been there, done this, done that, treated yourself, been to other doctors, been to psychiatrists? Yes. And he said, here you are. And then he said, and this is the essence of AA therapy. Let me tell you what happened to me. And he shared the entire lifetime of his drinking experience. And Dr. Bob was so moved by that, he had never been approached that way before, not by anyone. And then he dumped the sum total of his drinking experience on the table with it. And ladies and gentlemen, out of that pile of the rubble of two human lives, they discovered certain things they had in common. Number one, when they drank, they did not control it. It controlled them. So it doesn't make any difference what you drink, how you drink, how much you drink, what kind you drink, what time of day you drink, with whom you drink. All we have to do is answer this single question, when you drink, what happens? Do you control it? Or does it control you? I always ask our patients, have you ever, in the secrecy of your own heart, ever wondered whether or not you're drinking too much or drugging too much? Those stark little islands of honesty that hit us. And the second thing, it caused problems in my life. And they all had a slew of them. Bill had been knocked out of work, unemployable. Dr. Bob, unable to practice medicine, couldn't be trusted to do anything. And they all traced it back to the drinking. 
And so they began. AA is clinging to another alcoholic and sharing your drinking life with him. That's the essence of it. What it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Now in the beginning, Bill had a lifetime of drinking and six months of sobriety to share. Dr. Bob had a lifetime of drinking and maybe six hours of sobriety. Obviously then, in the beginning, there was more emphasis on the drinking part of one's life because that was the major part of one's life. What is it like now? Bill had to tell him about the six months of sanity that he was enjoying. And then they grabbed a hold of another alcoholic and another. All right, so in the beginning, as we know, looking back over the 12 steps as printed now, that we have at our disposal, we can see that the 12 steps patch up after we are liberated from the compulsion to drink alcohol, they patch up the three relationships that were shattered by the addiction with God, with self, and with neighbor. And so Dr. Bob summarized these 12 steps in six words. Trust God, steps one, two, and three. I can't handle it. God can. I think I'll get in touch. Part two, clean house. That straightens me out with myself. Steps four through eleven. An inventory and admission of guilt. A willingness to get rid of the bad. Asking God to help. A willingness to make amends in doing it. A continuing to examine self to admit promptly what goes wrong so that there's no longer a backlog of guilt building up to a drunk and a desire to deepen my relationship with the God who, to whom I attribute my sobriety through prayer. Now, all of this creates a gigantic change in personality and now the third relationship, help others, step 12. Now, the addicted person is capable of doing what God created him to do, to love by sharing sobriety. The paradox of recovery, Bill had to start with step 12 in order to discover the other 11. What did they discover in these 12 principles? Absolutely nothing new. What they did through sheer experience put the stamp of validation on a set of principles that God created when he created humanity. Ladies and gentlemen, my mother lived AA. Never heard of it. She lived it. And basically that's, I hope, that's what you try to teach your children. Trust God, clean house, help others. And this is all they had to offer other drunks that they went out to help. And the steps only came into being a little bit at a time. Do you know why four and five occur where they do? After a very short time of sobriety, Dr. Bob went on a medical convention and drank. And he shot back home. And four and five, an inventory of our moral lives 
and an admission of what went wrong in order to resolve the guilt, he found it to be absolutely essential if he was going to stay sober. He said, I cannot live sober with unresolved guilt in my life. So it all came about through experiencing things. And four years later, they were able to write these things with words. I was privileged to meet Bill Wilson once. I uh, attended a clergy conference on alcoholism in New York City. And Austin Ripley, who had already spent a year of his life with Bill and Dr. Bob, was able to get Bill to come down and address these priests. And he told his story. And uh, there was a, a question period afterwards. One of his dearest, closest friends was a Jesuit priest, Father Eddie Dowling. And the day that Bill came to talk to us, he had just returned days before from Father Dowling's funeral, and he stood at the podium and just wept like a child. They were the closest of friends. But anyway, one of the priests asked him, he said, Bill, since the 12 steps of recovery from the horror of addiction are so closely allied and so parallel to the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order of priests, is it true that a Jesuit wrote the 12 steps? And Bill smiled. He said, no, Father. He said, I wrote the steps. He said, it took me about a half hour because, he said, when it came time for publication, I took everything, all of the wisdom that we were trying to function by, and I think he said it was about 30 to 36 paragraphs, and he said, I had to condense them to put them into print, and it came out in those 12 lines. That was 1939, four years after Bill and Dr. Bob had met and they published the big book. And the organization, Alcoholics Anonymous, then took its name from the title of the big book. It was the big book's title that gave the name to the fellowship. Um, if there's anyone here with a scientific bent, or I love that, he is of a scientific bent, or background let this be remembered the 12 principles of Alcoholics Anonymous by which the people who try to live them get sober and stay sober over the 60 years of its existence with a couple of million of screwballs fooling around with them not one word has been changed. That should say something to the scientific community. Even scientists are constantly revising their theoretical statements. Even the big book, when they say a revised edition, the only part revised are the stories at the end. They just drop some and bring new ones in. The text remains 
It is written in the past tense. This is not theoretical. This is what we did to get what we've got. And so it's written in the past tense. This is what we did. This has been proven. And as it has been passed on, even from nation to nation, it is still as effective as when it started. Now, we come to 1995. We have the phenomenon of treatment. We have treatment centers. There are some. This Austin Ripley founded a place just for alcoholic priests. And I have visited there many, many, many times. I did get to know Rip very well. His concept of treatment. Time is of the essence of recovery. Time. And so his notion was three months minimum. You went home when he felt you were able to go home. Doc Green, a little old recovered alcoholic doctor, he taught the patients there what was wrong with them. He gave a series of lectures using the most brilliant and simplest language to explain alcoholism. One of the mysteries of the ages. And yet, uh, you know, the chalk talk is based on his lectures. In the times I was there, I used to take notes from the lectures that I was privileged to hear. And I've often asked patients, when you walk out, of seeing the chalk talk, did this thought hit you? My gosh, all that was so simple. Why didn't I know it? Why didn't I know it? It's an ABC. Basic. Basic notions. And Rip used to explain to his patients, Alcoholics Anonymous, which was the way in which they were to get well, that should be the backbone of all treatment. It should be. Today we get a month at most. Today we have this what is, uh, managed care. <laughs> a managed care executive died and got to the gates. <laughs> and he asked St. Peter, he said, did I make it? Peter said, you sure did. Come on in. We'll give you six days. <laughs> Anyway, what has happened in modern treatment? A great deal of wonderful development. Uh, we have a relapse program invented by Terry Gorski. I've known that young man from the beginning of his career. He's very brilliant. We have a whole lot of things about family damage, why many of us grew up the way we did. Uh, children of alcoholics, adult children of alcoholics. We have all kinds of things brought into being as secondary disciplines brought into being by some of the most brilliant people in the country, and I'm privileged to know some of them. I think that today, one of many ills in treatment, and they're universal, I'm not saying too much can be done about it. Number one, uh, it, it is so introspective. We are forced by the fourth step and everything else to examine self to see what in the world it is that I have to rebuild. I can't rebuild a house unless I take an inventory of the thing and see what has to be done. Um, and a lot of these secondary disciplines are brought in. And they're to be 
absorbed in a space of 28, 21, 15, or 7 days. Too brief a time. I remember once Rip told me there was a priest at Guest House who, uh, after three or four months, is very discouraged. He said, Rip, I can't see any progress. And Rip said, Father, how many years of alcoholic drinking did it take you to get into the shape that brought you here? It was about 18 years of alcoholic drinking. And he said, you want to see a complete change about in a couple of months? Time, 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 time. Time is of the essence of getting well from a disease that took years to build up. Now, I must, if I happen to be addicted to alcohol, prescription drugs, street drugs, marijuana, anything, I have to come to a full realization that they control me, I do not control them. Because if I ever lose that conviction, I may die. All addiction is terminal. You stop it or it'll stop you. One or the other. And so I have to get a handle on that. And it's, it's almost tragically amusing to hear a patient say, Oh no, I'm done with step one. I'm on four now. You're never done with step one. You're never done with any of them. And that's why it is, it is an invalid comparison to compare the 12 steps of AA to the 12 steps of a ladder. You leave the first step and go on to higher steps. You never leave any of the steps of AA. They are ongoing principles to live by. And the more you can deepen your awareness of your condition, step one, the safer you will be. And so we have to put secondary disciplines where they belong. Suppose I come into treatment, I only have 15 days, and I'm on the fence. Well, one day I may be an alcoholic, and the next day, but geez, I'm not too sure. Now, you want to talk about family problems? You want to talk about my emotional problems or sexual problems? I'll be happy to talk about that. Because all the while we're talking about them, I don't have to face step one and see if I really belong here. Basics, basics, basics. I always tell people, we are not here to treat asparagus problems. We're here to treat addiction problems. Addiction, addiction. That's why I'm here, is to get a handle on that. And the non-alcoholic member of the family is to get a handle on the damage that has done him and to find out what can be done about it. Now, suppose you have deep-rooted Problems caused by living in an alcoholic home as a child. Suppose you have more than deep-seated sexual problems because you were the victim of incest as a child. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, what, what I am beginning to see is that as many males as females have suffered sexual abuse in their youth. But anyway, suppose we have all these things. I must be clean and sober to address and resolve any of them. First things must come first. I remember a priest who said he had six months of work with a clinical psychologist. He had been accused of poo-pooing work with professionals. 
And he said, oh, no, I'm not against it at all. I'm just trying to make the point that I was sober when I was under his care. Sobriety first. Rip used to always tell his patients at guest house, Fathers, if your sobriety does not come first, there will be nothing to come second. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, first things must come first. And this is the basics of all treatment. I have to help this person convince himself that he has a problem with alcohol, prescription drugs, or street drugs, and he has got to get a handle on that before he handles anything. Trying to address or treat too many or emphasizing too much any of these secondary things in the beginning of sobriety almost smacks of the mental health approach. Well, these things are causative of the drinking. Let's clear them up and we'll be able to face the drinking. No. The alcoholic or drug addict drinks or drugs because he can't not do it. And it is a myth, and it's rather silly to say, let's solve some of these things so I can concentrate on my sobriety. You'll never solve any of these things unless you're clean and sober. And so, as Rip used to always say, if you have 10 or 20 problems, and one of them is addiction, that must be addressed first. Now, as you get into the community of AA or depending on whatever drug you chose as your drug of choice, NACA, whatever, always stay in the mainstream. These 12 principles came from Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you belong to any of these groups, you're sharing the exact same principles. Why did God allow me to get clean and sober or to get clean or sober. Why? To rejoin the human race. To fulfill my responsibilities. Most alcoholics are either husbands or wives or children or parents. Most alcoholics have a job. Most alcoholics live in a neighborhood and in a community and go to a given church. And during the year that Rip spent with Bill Wilson, here's what Bill said about your religious faith. He said, whatever you were before you got sober, you ought to be a better one afterwards. Just like your family life, your home life, your social life, your work life, and everything else. Your faith should improve. Don't substitute AA for your church. AA is completely embarrassed by that. We're not your church. We don't want to be your church. That's for you to... What we will do is open the door to God. Now you take it from there. What we will do, if you cooperate with us, is help you to get sober and stay sober. Now you do with your life what your responsibilities in life call for. Why is it that many alcoholics who get well ignore the so-called outside world. The holidays are coming up. You're going to hear people, oh yeah, we had a wonderful New Year's Eve party. And the only people there were AAs and Al-Anons. And it's announced with great pride. Where were your relatives? 
your neighbors, the people who were kind to you when you were drinking, those who prayed you sober. We are members of the human community. Um, We do belong to a given community. I think if we are sober and we are what we ought to be, I think we have a responsibility to that community. I think if you have children, there's an obligation to belong to the PTA or whatever it's called in your kids' schools and to become interested. I think you have a responsibility to listen to those who are not addicted people who care for us and work themselves half to death in the world of research try to learn a few things that might help us instead of condemning. I once heard a man say, uh, a very brilliant doctor in our field was coming to give a talk somewhere. He said, <laughs> this was his reaction, what the hell does he know about it? He's no alcoholic. Where, where do we come up with a mentality like that? Where? It seems that many develop the snobbishness of the have-nots. I've always said very often, alcoholics from their exalted position in the gutter look down their noses at the people on the sidewalk. Every single person to whom Bill and Dr. Bob reached out for help happened to be a non-alcoholic. I think that we are all obligated to trying to help another drunk primarily to help ourselves. Bill Wilson was desperate. He wanted to drink. He was away from home. He was discouraged. His wife was not beside him. And he wanted to drink. And the only thing he knew to keep from drinking was what had worked before. And he reached out to help a drunk he didn't even know. Today I hear conditions laid down under which we will help another. Oh yeah, the guy down the street from me has a terrible drinking problem, but he knows I'm in AA. He knows where to come when he wants help. Nonsense. You wait for him to come to you, you'll go to his funeral first. Ladies and gentlemen, let us never ever forget how this whole thing began. Dr. Bob didn't call Bill Wilson. Bill called him. Didn't even know him. That's the way this thing works. And to me, the most frightening statement in AA is out of the traditions. Tradition 5, the group, the AA group has as its one primary purpose to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. And it doesn't say to carry the message to the alcoholic who picks up the phone, calls AA and begs us to help him. doesn't say that at all. I'm not advocating running into bars and dragging people to meetings. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. It takes prudence, common sense, and experience. But please remember that that's the way it started, and that's basic. People say, well, you're tempted to drink. Yes, call your sponsor. Yes, get to a meeting. But if you're still hurting and you get your notes out from the treatment days and you look at all that, try to help a drunk. 
Go to the meeting and pick some poor slob out who's having a worse time than you are. And say, hey, look, I ain't much, but I'm all I've got. Can I help you? That's what works. And I certainly hope that in all of treatment, the basics are never forgotten. I remember a man, a, a wonderful fellow, just two weeks ago, he said, Father, I hope you hit on language as being the interpreter of the mind. He said, very often, a foul mouth is indicative of a foul mind. And very often in AA, we are subjected to language that you wouldn't use in a barnyard. I believe that the cleanup of language is one of the very first things that has to happen. For example, if I truly attribute my sobriety to a God of my understanding, I'm not about to drag his name around in the mud. When Bill Wilson was asked, what do you mean by a spiritual awakening? He said a profound, profound change in personality. And I think that a change in personality, in mind and attitude and thought, it has to externalize in our speech. And I would hope that the phrase, you have to be cruel to be kind, will never be uttered by anyone in the world of addiction. Cruel to the sickest of the sick. And I know that in some treatment centers they use a thing called the hot seat. I think that that is a violation of the most basic of human rights, a right to your own conscience. Let's get back to the basics, where one drunk, in his love for another, prompts him to seek him out and to try to help him in order to save his own neck. That's AA. That's what I've learned from people like Rip and people like you. AA is love, not cruelty. And I hope that as we all get better and better, we learn to love more and more and more deeply and more deeply. I want to thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, I've said so often, it's the likes of you that keeps the likes of me going. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. It's a nasty night out. It ain't a fit night out for men or beasts. <laughs> but nonetheless, you have come, and I appreciate it. And I bid you good night. <laughs>